Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everybody, it's Dustin from the HP Podcast. And this is Ben. We're just coming here to tell you about our show, well, the HP Podcast. The HP Podcast is a weekly video game podcast from HandsomePhantom.com that's also part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network. And... Ben, it's a little hard to describe our show because it's a little bit of everything. We get into a lot of shenanigans. We also talk about some news. We have some pretty serious topics sometimes, but sometimes uh, our friend Brandon takes a shirt off and uh, just does the show that way. So you should definitely check it out. I think you got stuck to the seat last time. It's possible. So that was that was a time. Yeah. So anyway, check out our show. We would love that. The HP podcast. This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Hey, yeah you. Did you know that Arcast is on Patreon? Go check out patreon.com slash Arcast for ways to help out the show and get some sweet perks in return. It could be something small such as our $1 tier to show your support. Or join one of our higher tiers to get a shout out, pick an episode topic, or even be a part of the show as a special guest. Even just sharing our show to your friends goes a long way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash Arcast. Thanks for helping us and keep it retro. What's up, Argonauts, and welcome to another Retro Gaming Podcast. This is Arcast Mini number 27, and I am here with my good buddy here, David Craddock. So how's it going there, Dave? Oh, it's going pretty well, man. How are you? I'm doing good, doing good. Um, I got to check out your book here, which is what we're going to be talking about, uh, called Arcade Perfect, How Pac-Man, Mortal Kombat, and Other Coin-Op Classics Invaded the Living Room. Um, which is definitely a very interesting take. Uh, basically, it's um, it's more or less kind of like a listing of like interviews, or at least t- taking like information from interviews, and uh, t- you know talking about like the stories basically that went into the um, like the home ports basically for like a lot of arcade classics. And uh, you know, as you mentioned here with like Pac-Man and Mortal Kombat, and, like Street Fighter Two, and like you know so several other games like that. Um, so I was kind of curious, like what I guess like prompted you to go with this idea. I think. Um... I think you can probably relate to this because uh, you, Robert, and me—you know—readers uh, our age, kind of in our—we're in our mid to late thirties, but I'll stick with mid for now. Um, <laughs> Got to keep us young like, a little bit, anyway. That's right. That's right. As long <laughs> as we can. As long as we can. Uh, video games of, are are of uh, well of eternity, I guess. But um, you know, we—I grew up playing arcade ports uh, even more than arcade games themselves because I couldn't go to the mall every day and I only had so many quarters so when a game like Ninja Turtles 2 would come out on NES or Mortal Kombat or NBA Jam um, I often came to know the home ports better than I did the arcade originals and uh, one of my favorite things as a kid was kind of poring over magazines like Nintendo Power and Game Pro and comparing and contrasting different versions of ports. Because, you know, like most kids, I didn't have every video game system. You kind of have to choose one, put your eggs in that basket. And I was pick a side pretty much at that point. Yeah, pick a side on the <laughs> playground, man. And um, I, I was usually a Nintendo kid because that's where I started with the NES. And uh, 
most of the time I felt pretty good about that, you know, Street Fighter 2, but then Mortal Kombat came out, and my friend Danny got it for Genesis, and of course he had the blood code, I did mm, not, I had Abacab, yeah, Abacab, <laughs> and Zellard, and, you know, I had, I had sweat, <laughs> you kind of cling to that, like, but there's sweat, that's kind of neat in its own way, but it was not, and yeah. <laughs> I just, always growing up, I really, I actually, I wasn't trying to win any console wars, I actually grew to a point where I was very, interested in why the versions were different which kind of led to my in college for a while i was a computer science major did a lot of programming kind of tooled around in the guts of a lot of these games and when i switched to writing uh, one of my goals has always been to find an angle on stories that no one has told and you know you can google the making of mortal Kombat and find everybody with their take on it but i said well you know nobody's really bothered to probe a little pun uh, into like the home versions of Mortal Kombat, such as the Genesis port by Probe, the the Super NES port by Sculpture Software, and so that became the thrust of this book. I I tracked down as many developers as I could find and who were willing to to talk and just ask them about ports of arcade games that they worked on and kind of what the process was because you know back then uh, Arcade Perfect was what we used to describe a a perfect port, you know, one to one. But that didn't really start to exist in great numbers until I would say like the PlayStation era, um, because consoles and, and early PC operating systems like DOS really couldn't replicate arcade games. So right, yeah, yeah I, I kind of wanted to say, you know, learn like, okay, well, the Genesis version of Mortal Kombat was kind of had a muddy color palette, which I actually kind of liked. I thought that added to kind of the grungy look and feel of the game. Um, so I, you know, wanted to find out why that was and how they kind of worked around it or harnessed it to use it to their advantage. And uh, yeah, there's 16 chapters and every chapter deals, concentrates usually on one game, but anywhere from half a dozen as they're pulled into the conversation. Hmm. So you were like mentioning like, you know, as far as like having to, um, or like, you know, like having these like people basically having to like reimagine basically like a lot of these games, because obviously like the technology wasn't there like in the, in the earlier years anyway, uh, in order to get that one to one comparison to the arcade port. Um, do you feel like a lot of that was just like, um, you know, just like the programmers and the developers basically for the, for these games, like basically just trying to reimagine them or trying to, I guess, like figure out like what what is like my take on this game if I can't make it exactly the way that, that uh, you know, that people originally remember in the arcades? Oh, spot on. In fact, that was literally what happened in many cases. You know, I talked to Todd Fry, who's who's uh, famous and infamous, the latter for uh, his port of Pac-Man on the Atari 2600. Of course, and yeah. He even said, uh, I tell an interesting story in the beginning where Atari kind of sat him and another programmer down and said, so we have two projects coming down the pipe. We need a port of Defender and we need a port of Pac-Man. And Fry actually wanted to work on Defender. He he kind of recognized that Pac-Man was this big thing, but he didn't really care for the game. But mm. the other guy got Defender first. And so Todd was like, oh, OK, fine, I'll do Pac-Man. And he even said, like, I didn't get any source, but it wouldn't have really done me any good anyway, because I couldn't have done a one-to-one conversion, even though uh pac-man arcade and uh, 2600 games were both written in assembly there were different dialects it would have taken too long and you know a lot of these projects were under the gun uh you need to get the ports out quickly to capitalize on the game's popularity it was like a six month window or something like that something like that yeah and um he said i i did not try to make a game faithful to the arcade i tried to channel the spirit of the arcade he said uh for example um you know his his background was blue and his maze walls were orange rather than black and blue respectively, like in the arcade. Right. And he said, the funny thing is like, if I could go back and change that, I would, but I didn't really think about it. All I was thinking of, okay, I have finite resources. I need 
one screen. I need walls. I need tunnels somewhere. You know, he didn't put his tunnels on the left and right. He put them at the top and bottom. And so he just said, as long as there was uh, a pizza-shaped guy <laughs> and four and four ghosts running around chasing this player while he was eating pellets, then that, as far as I was concerned, with Pac-Man. And I mean, um, it kind of sounds like almost um, when, whenever you hear of like Hollywood directors trying to convert like video games into movies, and like it's like, well, as long as we get this basic idea of what the oh, games yeah. are all about, then we can basically convert it into like a movie that might be palatable, I guess, for for people for the movie going audience. Um, whereas, like, I guess in this case, it was just more of like just trying to get it to work within the the, the confines, I guess, of uh, of the other respective platforms. Exactly. I know you know books work that way too. If you're if you're sitting in a movie like I Am Legend and you see based on, you're like, okay, so they use the same title, but that might be it. You yeah. know, kind of they have to do, and they have to because to uh, for various reasons, creative and technical, they can't do like a one to one adaptation of source material. So that's the sort of thing I found interesting. I, I know that. Um, and I, I make note that over time, you know, people have kind of come around to Todd's version because back then, uh, you know, Atari sold millions of copies of, of that conversion. Um, Todd Fry got royalties, I think 10 cents a cartridge, became a millionaire, but people shunned it. They were like, oh man, this is terrible. They returned the game in droves. And that was kind of one, um, one step that led toward the, the crash in the North American market in, in 1983. Mm-hmm. But over time, you know, I mean, well, back then, you know, nobody understood, oh, it can't be exactly like the arcade because the Atari, this box in my living room is not as powerful as this big cabinet at the pizza parlor or whatever. And so I think people have kind of come around to games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong in 2600 kind of realizing well, there's no way they they could have made anything better than what they did. Yeah. And um, you like, mentioned before also like about like the, the changes, at least in, in, uh, in like Pac-Man anyway. Um, in regards to like the color scheme and also like where like the warp pipes are or, like or like the warp areas are basically like on, on the maze. Um, but was there any, any explanation as far as like why they changed uh, dots and the dashes as well? Yeah, that was actually one of the, the questions I had because no one again, I, I look for things that no one has really talked about. Um, Todd explained that was one of the, his biggest headaches. What happened was the Atari, if you look at most Atari games, they are very blocky. And it's because the Atari really couldn't render uh, round object circles, which is still a problem today. You know, you look at wheels and unless they have like a billion polygons, they still look kind of rectangular. Right. Um, And so he he said what he did was also, you know, these consoles could only draw so many sprites on each row of the screen. So he said rather than make the dots sprites, which wouldn't have been round anyway, what he did was he actually every dash that you see that Pac-Man eats is actually part of the background. But it's it's um, ethereal, so Pac-Man can walk over it. And as soon as the game detects that Pac-Man is overlapped with a dash, a bit of code just turns that part of the background off. Oh, okay. So it's like a transparency, almost in a sense. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I thought that was kind of yeah, pretty interesting. That's the things that you have to, the hoops you have to jump through to do something as simple as figuring out. Okay, I can't draw circles apparently. So what do I do to <laughs> to replace that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting in like how, um, you know, even though there, there were like all those differences, like the, the essence of the game, I guess, was there and it really yeah. became like its own beast, really, in a sense. So. Yeah, it really did. You know, the big thing that people uh, slighted Todd and that game for was the ghost flickering, which, you know, in fairness, like is not pleasant to look at for extended <laughs> periods. Um, but one thing that Todd ran into and one thing that Gary Kitchen, who converted Donkey Kong to the 2600, ran into was... Um, Atari took a very business-like perspective on these ports. They said, we know we're going to sell millions, so we don't really need to spend more money on making them better. We just need something serviceable because people are going to buy it. It, You know, the whole crap in a bag 
uh, anecdote of like people will buy this no matter what. It's the name on the box. Sure. Yeah. And so Todd said he actually had a way he figured out how to solve flickering. And I describe it in the book. But his boss said, well, only implement it if you're sure, because we're running out of time. And Todd said, yeah, this doesn't seem like the sort of project I should be experimenting with. I need to just go with what works. And so the ghost flickered. But he did say that the game would have been night and day different, better if Atari would have shelled out more money for double the, the ROM size in the cartridge, 8K instead of 4K. But again, they said, well, we're going to we're going to produce something like 12 million of these things. If mm. we pay 10 cents a cartridge for another 4K of ROM, that's going to add up to millions for us. And we're going to sell through our stock anyway. So why should we put the extra effort into it? And that, that has to be very uh, frustrating as a programmer to sit there and read these reviews, people bashing your game and know it could have been better, but it was kind of out of my hands. Right, right. And um, there was also like another big like arcade game that got converted to, which is Donkey Kong, which is also in, in the book. And yeah. um, I was kind of curious, I guess, like what kind of challenges um, that you'd like discovered, I guess, like from <laughs> from from that game, because I, I don't remember like too much, I guess, of like the home ports of Donkey Kong. I, I you know, I, I mainly play the, the arcade version myself. So I was kind of curious on that one. Yeah. So the, the shining jewel, as far as Donkey Kong conversions go, was the ColecoVision port. And I actually couldn't track down anyone to talk to that. It's still on my to do list. Um, it was almost arcade perfect because the ColecoVision had, you know, um, quite a few advantages over the Atari 2600. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gary Kitchen converted the Atari version. This That version was infamous because the, the graphics are honestly terrible. Uh, Donkey Kong <laughs> looks like a gingerbread man. Mario looks like he's just wearing red pajamas. The, the barrels rolling on their sides kind of look like cookies. Uh, <laughs> and there are only two of the arcade games, four levels. And they're, they're also known, none of the quote-unquote cutscenes, like 25 meters, 75, 100, how high can you go, any of that. Mm. Um, and the reason for that I found out was, um, <laughs> I think chapter five, Donkey Kong might be my favorite because Gary told really interesting stories. One was, um, the arcade had, um, what's called the play field, which is the, the screen, any objects on the screen. And, um, it had 40 bits of memory, 20 for the left side, 20 for the right. And it could do certain functions easily. Like you could create, you could draw the left side of the screen and then just mirror it on the right, you know, to simplify drawing. But problem, of course, with Donkey Kong's first level, which is the most iconic, and he knew that, was that, you know, the ramps are slanted so that some tilt down to the right, others tilt down to the left. And there was no easy built-in way for the Atari to do that. So <laughs> uh, Gary got, um, he was, as he was almost done with the port, he kind of resolved, well, whatever, the first, the, the platforms in the first level are just going to be flat. No one will care. <laughs> he started calling around. He said, hey, I'm the guy who's porting a Donkey Kong to the Atari. Uh, and remember, this was at a time when only really Atari and Activision made uh, games for the 2600. It wasn't, we hadn't yet reached the point where anyone could get a license and develop games for platforms. So right. uh, Gary had become a hot commodity by saying, yeah, I'm the guy who converted Donkey Kong. So this guy from Activision flew to his house to take a look at the port. And as Ke- as Gary walked him out, he said, so what do you think? And the guy said, well, Gary, I'll tell you, if you work for Activision, you'll figure out how to make those ramps slanted. And then he left. So Gary was kind of like, <laughs> crap. I if you value your life. <laughs> if you value your life, sir. If you value your career in this case. And so what he did was he figured out a way to do it. And I don't want to explain it. It's too technical, but I, I do cover it. But what happened was it consumed so much of his 4K of ROM. And again, Atari wouldn't budge and give him more mm-hmm. um, that he only had room for two levels out of the four. And so his first level is is pretty good, but it's it's just missing a lot of the bells and whistles that make games special, kind of their soul, like the extra animations, the sound effects, 
Um, but you know, that first level has slanted platforms. So that's something <laughs> mm, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next thing I wanted to get into here also is double dragon actually. Cause, um, I do remember the, uh, the home port of double dragon on the NES. Uh, it was one player only, I believe. And the arcade version was two player, obviously, since you have Billy and Jimmy there. So, um, I, I was kind of, I was kind of curious, I guess, like, um, like what other restraints there was aside from like, you know, the fact that they couldn't do two player. Well, so if I remember, there was a two-player mode, but it was asynchronous. So like I'd play until I died, and then you'd play. And there was also that that um, that versus game where you could pick different characters and fight. Right, um, right. But um, but I, I could be wrong on the on the asynchronous co-op. I don't exactly remember. But um, what happened was like that was that was the most um, famous port, uh, in large part because of how it was changed in the arcade. You know, rather than give you all the moves at the outset, you kind of leveled up as you played and gained more moves, like the throw and headbutts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the versions I covered, uh, I covered, I covered two. I covered the conversion to ZX Spectrum and to the Sega Genesis. And those two are interesting because, as far as the Spectrum goes, I don't know if you've ever taken a look at many Spectrum games, but it it did a it had a weird problem called color clash where it could only paint squares of the screen in broad colors so like you'd look and there'd be like a yellow section of the screen which would bleed into a green section you couldn't really color individual objects and also characters were more like outlines like in a coloring book that would take on the colors of background areas as they walked through them (laughs) Um, so really the struggle there i talked with david leach who also did ports of um, terminator 2 mortal kombat 2 later on um, how he went about making that version good. And his answer was basically, uh, he didn't. (laughs) It was was his first high-profile port. And the story I kind of focus on there is the fact that even though games like Double Dragon were considered a really big deal, publishers really didn't care enough to put their top programmers on them. They just had deadlines to meet, and so they'd take a warm body and say, you, you're converting Double Dragon. We don't really care how it turns out, just get something on shelves. Right. And um, David Leach actually said he kind of wanted to redeem himself after that. So he did Shinobi and Narc for the ZX Spectrum and actually made those games a lot faster, a lot tighter, uh, more colorful, kind of learned to work within the restraints of the Spectrum rather than kind of (laughs) having to kowtow to them. So Double Dragon kind of like uh, helped them, like I guess, like prepare for those later games. Then, yeah, it did. It did. Um, it's what kind of gave him the reputation he needed to get a project like uh, Mortal Kombat Two on Genesis later. Um, mm. And then the the Genesis version, I talked with uh, Simon Street, the artist, and Pete Andrew, the programmer. And there, so so what I like to do in these books, I get into a lot of technical nitty gritty stuff, but I also like to talk about the people because, um, especially uh, on older games when teams were really small. Um, you can really see someone's personality on the game because they were often the only one responsible for it. In fact, for most of these arcade ports, as I write about, there was one programmer. I mean, one programmer did conversions of Mortal Kombat, which is kind of crazy when you can think you think of the status of that game. Right, yeah. Um, and so uh, Pete Andrew, going growing up, he had a teacher literally laugh in his face when he said, I want to play video games. And so that kind of caused a lot of a doubt that he felt he had to conquer over the course of his career. And even though his Genesis version of Double Dragon didn't turn out quite the way he wanted, he had a lot of problems with like collision detection. It gave him the confidence to say, you know what, I actually did something. I shipped the game. I proved that I can do this. And then over the course of his career, he became producer, director, and he's a really high profile guy now. So mm-hmm. just kind of uh, showing that, you know, 
you're not always going to turn out, you're not always going to get a home run, but you at least want to get on a base so you can move toward home. And that's, it was right. a really good story. I liked that section a lot, actually. That's cool. Yeah. And um, there's also Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which uh, I'm guessing that's the arcade game? Yes, correct. Because obviously there was the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game on the NES, and then they mm-hmm. made Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the arcade game on the NES, which is meant to be a port, basically, of that of that arcade game. Um, so, like, with that, um, like, what were, like, some of the, like, main differences aside from, like... Um, like, like the one thing I, I remember anyway is like that the NES version actually added in the level because they couldn't have like certain levels that the arcade game did have. Like I think like the the, the level that they added in the NES version was the uh, like the snow level with the polar bear boss. Yeah, it was. So I loved that game growing up. Um, they actually added two levels. They added the snow level, and then before, in between, like the factory and the Technodrome, you go into this dojo and fight like robot ninja type enemies. Right. Um, and they also doubled the size of each level in the arcade. Uh, and it was, that port was really interesting because it was one of those games where like gameplay wise, it was almost easier because the special attack in that game, sometimes in the arcade, it would whiff you like, you do the jump attack to the one hit kill and your sword or bow staff or whatever would go right through a foot soldier and the NES detection was was off or something. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, that, that it was intentional to, you know, so you'd miss occasionally and have to keep pumping in quarters. Right. Um, (laughs) Good. But yeah, but, uh, in, in the NES case, it, it was actually kind of cool that, like, as a kid, it was just a longer experience. It felt like a meteor game. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing, I have a personal anecdote about that. When I was a kid, uh, I was only allowed 30 minutes of game time uh, on weeknights, on school nights. So the thing about, you know, the NES didn't, not all the games saved. So occasionally you'd look out with, like, Legend of Zelda and maybe a password-based system with, like, Castlevania. But Turtles 2 didn't have any of that. So every night I felt like I was in Groundhog Day because every night I get halfway through level three and then my mom would say, okay, no more games. I'd be like, I'm never going to finish this damn game. <laughs> then, then I found the Konami code, which I didn't use to cheat and give myself more lives, but I would use it as sort of a de facto save system where I would say, okay, I left off at level three, so I'm just going to warp right to level three. And eventually mm. I, fin- I finished the game. So cheat codes are good. Cheat codes yeah. are good for kids. <laughs> Stay in school. Um, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, but the, the other the other um, version I talk about in that chapter, so the, the game or the book deals with not only ports of arcade games, but efforts to preserve arcade games. And I talked to the CEO of Arcade 1UP. I actually met up with him at E3 this year where he debuted the Turtles arc, uh, cabinet, which has Turtles and Turtles in Time, which was Turtles 4 on Super Nintendo, mm-hmm. and just kind of talked about the origins of Arcade 1-Up and the rigmarole he had to go through. He had to work out deals with Konami and Nickelodeon, because Konami has the rights to Ninja Turtles video games, but Nickelodeon owns the Turtles IP, and so all parties had to be appeased for that for that cabinet to come together, and it'll be out this fall. So I kind of tell the story about kind of what was involved there. Chapter 10 of the book, Chapter 9 is Ninja Turtles, Chapter 10 is Street Fighter 2, and I talked um, with a lot of developers from Digital Eclipse about programming emulators and getting the Street Fighter 30th anniversary collection running. And they, they told me about things like, you know, what do you do when you don't have the original code? And yet Capcom says, hey, you need to add 2018 to the copyright screen or we don't have the rights to use the Coca-Cola logo on the boxes in Chun-Li's marketplace stage. Go change those. <laughs> Just kind of the craziness you have to do. It, it, the the programmer, uh, Daniel Filner, brought up a good point. He's like, you know, a lot of people think my job is preserving arcade games, but really I'm paid to corrupt them because the version <laughs> of Street Fighter 2 you're playing on 30th anniversary isn't the arcade game since I had to go in there and change pixels in some areas and stuff. So right. it was kind of an interesting perspective on it, I thought. 
Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they had to like manipulate some things in order to, yeah, to like avoid any sort of like copyright um, infringement in that case. Because yeah. um, like I, I know that was the case too with like Shenmue uh, when they did the remasters for that and they had to like change around some things in order to avoid um, right. like I, th- I think it was I think it was also Coca Cola like you know like in the vending machines or something like that. Um, but with like Street Fighter Two, um, that that home port for the SNES was very well received and like I remember having like, a lot of fun with that one. Um, that's mainly how how I played Street Fighter Two because I I played like you know the, the arcade version, but like when it came to the SNES, it, it was basically arcade perfect, even though it wasn't, but. For all intents and purposes, like, was that, I guess, would you consider that, I guess, the uh, first quote-unquote arcade perfect port? I would consider it pretty close. You know, the the sprites were smaller, and they also cut out a lot of attacks. So, like, they'd actually, I can overlook graphics and audio, but when you start messing with the content, that's where I think you have to start shaving off points. You mean the, like, animation of the the moves, or? No, some some moves were completely changed. Like, Chun-Li actually has two or three different kicks than she did. Oh, gotcha. Like, her normal moves, yeah. Like, her normal specials, whatever, yeah. Correct, correct. And, um, but I would consider it probably the first that was really... That when you were playing it, like if you didn't know the technical details, you would sit down and think, yeah, this is just like the arcade. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's better because um, I'm one of those weirdos who when I play Street Fighter, I get pretty serious about it. But I don't always like to play with an arcade stick because I'm used to the Super NES pad and it's smooth D-pad, which I think made input more accurate. So that's actually, yeah, in the book where I start to get into kind of the advantages of home games. Like, you know, these were different, but that actually in some ways that meant they were better than the mm. originals because the controls are smoother you didn't have to deal with continues and that sort of thing yeah and also the fact that the super nintendo controller actually had like a six button layout in order to use yeah. that even though it was a little locker with like the shoulder buttons but you just kind of just, just got used to it so yeah yeah i remember what i would do is i would i would remap the controls so that the medium attacks were on the shoulders that way i had access same to yeah hard yeah attacks on the face and that made you know, those respective moves much easier to pull off. Because I think if you're like me, you probably use those attacks more than you did the medium. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, I think like for me, like the medium attacks were just, you know, just not as, you know, as well used as like, you know, if, if I need like a quick attack, I use like light. If I need something more hard hitting, then obviously the hard punch or whatever. So yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So it, it makes sense in that case. And uh, like, I was kind of curious also if there was like any, um, any like major changes, like say like with like the music in that game or like with, um, you know, with, with any other, like, I guess like content within the game. Within Street Fighter 2? Yeah. Um, yeah, and Super Nintendo, they did a lot of stuff that was actually kind of really subtle. Um, since they didn't have room for the same voice samples as in the arcade, they would take the voice sample, but then raise the pitch. Like, instead of uh, Ryu's Hadouken, it sounds like Hadouken. Like, it's it's almost like he <laughs> took a shot to the balls right before throwing that. Yeah, ball. yeah. Hadouken! <laughs> Hadouken! Um, and yeah, just a lot of little stuff that they, that they had to figure out how to go in and change. Like... Um, you know, adding a, a proper versus mode was so important because, you know, in the arcade, when you would join up, the player who had already been there couldn't select a new character. They were locked to who they'd been controlling. Exactly, yeah. And just being able to kind of, like, squeeze those modes into code was uh, a really interesting experience and an interesting trial for, for programmers. Mm. Interesting, yeah. And uh, going into another popular fighting game here with Mortal Kombat, um, and we were like discussing before like recording here about like uh, about like the Sweat Fest that was the Super Nintendo version. <laughs> um, obviously, the Genesis version had the Abacab code, um, as as we mentioned. Also, like you know, that that turned on the blood code basically. But um, the Super Nintendo did not have that that luxury, and a lot of that really revolved around Nintendo's restrictions on uh, on the game, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, I actually taught one of the people I interviewed for Mortal Kombat was Jeff Peters, who was the who was a title director. 
at Sculptured Software, and he headed up the Super NES version. And he told me a lot about how, you know, Mortal Kombat kind of sent the political world into a tizzy, parents into a tizzy. Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, at Sculptured, th- that version of the game of Mortal Kombat 1 suffered a lot of setbacks. I don't know if you remember, but the, the controls in that game are really laggy. Sometimes it wouldn't even register inputs. You had to really press hard. Um, yeah, which I kind of like attributed that to like the overall, I guess, uh, clunky feel of the Mortal Kombat games in general. <laughs> it was, it, it kind of, they always did feel kind of clunky, but in this case, they had a programmer who was kind of a hotshot. And so they had to take him off and put three more programmers on. And there were some things that they couldn't salvage and the, the wow. control responsiveness was one of them. But he said, in terms of the violence, they were sitting there working on this game, knowing that Sega was probably going to kick their ass at retail because, um, they knew that Sega and Acclaim uh, got permission, or Sega gave Acclaim permission for Probe to put in a blood code. And I actually asked Jeff, I'm like, hypothetically, what would have happened if you guys would have snuck one in? And he said, oh, Nintendo would have sued us and taken us for everything we had. Like, they were that strict about it. Right. Um, but, of course, the, the result was uh, Genesis outsold Super Nintendo for like 5 to 1 or 10 to 1, and Nintendo kind of hung its head and said, okay, okay, you kids can, you know, have your blood and guts. And, and Mortal Kombat 2 for Super Nintendo was almost arcade perfect. But the really interesting thing in that story I talk about was Sculptured Software was based in Salt Lake City, which is a very heavily Mormon area. Mm. And uh, Jeff told me that um, <laughs> there were some programmers who went to him and said, look, I'll work on this project, but you can't tell my family I'm working on it. because They would have been, <laughs> would have been ostracized. Jeff, in fact, was ostracized by neighbors, wow. by the adults. So they went from like chatting over the hedgerow and the that sort of thing to just completely giving them the cold shoulder. But he <laughs> said on the flip side was all the kids would come to his house like, Harry, you're working on Mortal Kombat. Can we play it? Right. So it was like a drug dealer on the sun street or something. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's like the more you tell someone they can't have something, the more they want it, which of exactly. course that's one way Sega outsold Nintendo. Everyone heard like, oh, they're censoring these games, but Sega has blood. I'm in. Yeah. Right. So. It's like the playground kind of like talk, basically like, you know, we're, we're got around fast, even though like the internet wasn't like where, where it is now and, yeah. and everything, but, but the word got around fast. So, and, and also like knowing what that code was, that was like an iconic code basically from then on. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is, uh, so I talked to Paul Crothers uh, who converted uh, Mortal Kombat to Genesis and the first code he did was duller, down, up, left, left, A, right, down at the main menu. And you could enable blood from there. You could also do things like one-hit kills on the computer, a whole bunch of flags they were called. And then Sega came back to him, and he said the codes were actually input at the very, very end of production. And Sega came back, and he said, they said, we want one that's just for blood. And he was kind of uh, grumbling about that because he said, well, I already did one code. Why do I need another one? So he did Abacab. With the extra beak, you know, he was kind of inspired by the, the the band Genesis, their album Abacab with one B at the end. But he had to make it A-B-A-C-A-B-B because Dullard was seven characters and Abacab had to be seven characters as well. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Okay. And um, also, you you added in here like Street Fighter Alpha. Um, I don't really know too much about the home port for Street Fighter Alpha, but Street Fighter Alpha Two for Super Nintendo certainly comes to mind. Uh, like I imagine you get into that as well as as well as the first game, right? Well, I only I make a point of only talking to developers or only writing about games uh, whose developers I can talk to because I want new information. And gotcha. Street okay. Fighter Alpha Two was handled by a Japanese company, and there's a, an obvious language barrier there. But I can talk about that game because. That was actually one of my favorites. I had that for Super Nintendo. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, it was, I think, the only Super Nintendo game that had loading in it. Yeah, yeah, that was a big deal, I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
with like Street Fighter Alpha One, then in that case, um, what were like some of the main differences with that? Because uh, I think that came out for uh, was it for PlayStation One? And... It was on PS One and Saturn, and uh, they were both arcade perfect. I talked to uh, Keith Burkle, who he had a lot of interesting stories. He worked on the Game Boy Color version. Um, mm. One of my objectives with this book was to cover a wide range of systems. I, I talk about NBA Jam Tournament Edition on PlayStation. And really, like in my mind, ports that are arcade perfect aren't as interesting as the ones that aren't because the developers usually end up saying, yeah, the hardware was great, so I just ported it all one-to-one. You know, and it's kind of stories over the end. Um, but the Game Boy Color port was interesting because if you ever play that, look it up sometime, the animations are identical to the arcade. The character models themselves are much simpler as are the backgrounds, but animation-wise, it is astounding how close to the arcade they got. And Street Fighter Alpha 3, which is the second game I write about uh, for Game Boy Advance, was even better. But that game was actually controversial because due to a lot of factors, um, the developer Crawfish missed their deadline. Capcom kind of threw a fit and said, okay, well, when you're done, you get no royalties. So they basically got no money for making that game. And it was was critically uh, critically acclaimed. It sold well but they didn't see a dime from it. The studio shut down and uh, Keith Burkill, who was the main program on that version as well, was ostracized. He was basically blacklisted from the, um, the games industry. He hasn't made a game since. Because of Capcom or? Because of Capcom, because of the fallout with, you know, he worked with friends and that's always kind of a thing. Right. And yeah, a lot of people blamed him for like the, the failure of the studio, even though there are a lot of other play. And he said, yeah, I haven't been able to work on a game since. Jeez. Yeah. And yeah. It was a it was a crazy thing, and definitely definitely look that version up and play it. It is incredible how I mean it had all twenty eight characters from the arcade plus four more, and this is on Game Boy Advance. It's just hmm. it's kind of mind boggling how how um, close it was to being arcade perfect. Interesting. Wow. So was there like someone like who you were like trying to reach out to like to speak with for this book that you just couldn't get a hold of? They just really really wanted to get in there. Yeah, I uh, the funny thing is. As a kid, before I had Street Fighter 2 for Super Nintendo, I was always a late bloomer. I got the NES late. I got the Super NES late. That actually, I think it worked out because by then a lot of games were cheaper, you know, so you could get more. Um, But I had Street Fighter 2 for DOS. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So here's the thing about that version. I don't know the exact story because, again, I couldn't. I got someone who worked on it, but they didn't want to talk about it. And you'll find out why. Um, (laughs) That version was ported from, I think, the the Amiga port, I think. And the problem with this, for whatever reason, they did two things that really hurt the PC versions of that game. Number one, the gravity was beyond screwed up so that it it felt like you were fighting on the moon. You're just floating around. (laughs) But the other big problem was they boiled all the six attacks down to two buttons. And, you know, yeah, you can get away with that on Game Boy, but the graphics on the PC, especially on DOS, were arcade perfect. It's just that nothing else was. And it was just... It was really slow and clunky, but I kind of told myself it was awesome because it's all I had at the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I, I really wanted to actually bend someone's ear and say, what's what's the story there? Why is this Street Fighter 2 Moon Edition? Like, what happened? What's going on? <laughs> so since it only uses, like, two buttons, then is it more of kind of like a pressure-sensitive kind of thing in order to get the different attacks? Or um, It didn't do pressure-sensitive. Like, for example, on, on mine, by default, Enter was Kick, Spacebar was Punch. What you would do is if you held a direction and hit one of the buttons, you would do a different attack. Oh, but okay. But it still didn't have all six, if memory serves. You could do 
I think it basically boiled down to light and hard attacks. Like if you held up and hit enter, you would do a roundhouse kick, the hardest kick. If you held up and hit space, you'd do a fierce punch. Mm-hmm. But it was just really awkward. Like if you wanted to do, for example, you know, uh, Ken and Ryu's sweep is down plus hard kick. You had to hold. You had to hold down, then hold up and press enter. So you're crouching while holding up and pressing kick. It was weird, man. So, but like up was also jump. So I imagine like there would be like a lot of like missed inputs in that case too. Yeah, right? there, there kind of was, but it was also kind of slow. So if you what you do is you tap down, then immediately hold up and start mashing kick, so that the computer would read, oh well, he did press down and now he's pressing kick. So I guess this is all fine, and you would just do sweep kicks it was really weird but i got pretty good at it because i only had that version to play for a while i mean just now i was kind of picture like the this is fine dog but like with you with your oh, dos copy of street fighter 2 <laughs> it was it was completely that <laughs> yeah but it was also like as a kid like i knew it was inferior but i also liked it because i'm like why did this why did this even happen it's such a weird you don't think that that could happen with a game as high profile street fighter 2 yeah. And it did, and they sold one to me. So, you know, points on the board for them. I mean, it kind of reminds me, too, of the, um, there's like a, I think like a DOS version of Mega Man as well. That's like very infamous. So. <laughs> oh, so here's the weird thing about those games. Okay, I had those. I loved Mega Man. The DOS games for Mega Man, did you ever play those? I played it like a little bit. Yeah, I do remember playing it like at like a summer camp or something. So. So, so there are two weird things about that. First of like Mega Man for DOS was completely different. It wasn't a port of the NES game. It had like brand new characters. It also had really weird physics. Um, but the second thing is they made Mega Man 1 and then they made Mega Man 3. There was no Mega Man 2 for PC. <laughs> Just ignore that. Someone over there couldn't count. But also both of the games were completely like not at all based on the NES port. So like they were total anomalies. And it's not even... Like, don't even track them down. Like, look at YouTube videos, but do not play them. <laughs> it's like another dimension where Mega Man also exists, oh, but, like, as a completely yeah. different thing by different people and all that. So. They're, they're like, what if these were the only Mega Man games? I just think <laughs> Capcom would have tanked unless Street Fighter 2 still took off, because right. these are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. And um, I was kind of curious also if there was, like, a um, like any particular arcade games that never did get home ports that you would have loved to see. There are, but a lot of them are more obscure and go beyond my knowledge. Like, um, I know there was, it wasn't, there's a Ridge Racer, which of course did get ports, but then there was another game. It wasn't like a Ridge Racer 2, but that never came to consoles. A lot of racing games didn't actually. Like, I think there was a sequel to Daytona USA that never made it to consoles. Mm, And it's not really clear why. I I know that for, I talked to um, some coin-op developers for this book. And they actually said that, like, they, it's not that they didn't care how the console games did, but they were focused on making coin-op games because that's how they got royalties. Right. And right. so they, you know, I, I, I know you guys interviewed John Tobias. I don't know if you talked about this with him, but I, I asked him, like, what did you think of the console versions? He said, honestly, Ed Boone and I would just kind of check in and go, like, okay, yeah, it looks good because we were totally focused on making the arcade games because that's how we got paid. Like, I think they got residual royalties from the console games, but... They didn't really care, more or less, because right. they're very hands off of that. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, like, um, yeah, I know for me. I mean, um, I'm, I'm kind of like a big sucker for Ninja Baseball Batman, 
um just mm-hmm. because like it is such a goofy beat em up game like where you basically play as like these ninja i guess like robots and uh, it's all like baseball themed <laughs> and there's like a level like where you're inside a plane and you're fighting a, like a boss that is a plane um so I, like that's like one thing that you know that's, that's one game certainly i would have liked to see but obviously like or like around the time like it came out i think it was around the super nintendo time i want to say that would never have been able to run on on like a super nintendo um, but it would be cool yeah. to see like some sort of like port like later on or something like on like a PlayStation One or Saturn or something like that. It totally would, considering that like nowadays, like Arcade Perfect is no longer a thing. But you see all, all sorts of anthologies from you know companies like Konami, especially companies like Digital Eclipse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Digital Eclipse, I love that they go beyond just like grabbing arcade games and and round up like design documents and concept artworks, so that they actually create these little almost like digital wings in a museum. To, to games like Street Fighter and the Disney Afternoon games, and um, I think this is kind of a great time to go after the more obscure arcade games and bring them to consoles. Maybe for the first time, that'd be a great selling point. The price would have to be right. Oh yeah, because I think all too all too often publishers price gouge. But man, if they're like twenty thirty bucks for another anthology of like really obscure games, I'd be all over that. Yeah, and Capcom's been doing that as well as you mentioned with the Street Fighter Two uh, or with, with the Street Fighter Thirtieth Anniversary Edition. Um, yeah, but and like their beat 'em up, the beat 'em up bundle, the beat 'em up bundle as well, it. for sure. Yeah. Uh, but then they make like some questionable choices too, like with the um, with having like Alien versus Predator be relegated to that Capcom like uh, sort of like arcade, I don't know, like slab more or less. <laughs> like it was just like a really yeah. weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never like nobody knows how Capcom operates. I don't think any any developer has had more influence over fighting games. They have so many properties there to mine. Mm-hmm. That whenever they make a really weird decision like that, you're just kind of like, okay, you're Capcom. I kind of assume you still know what you're doing over there. Uh, Street Fighter Five is launched, notwithstanding. Right. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, they are kind of swimming in like in in like IPs. Like not not to like make this like um, um, devoted to like Capcom, but I mean certainly like with a lot of the properties that they do have that they haven't like just touched in a long while, like especially with like Rival Schools, a Power Stone, or Dark Stalkers, or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, they, they are swimming in like a lot of IPs, but they're just kind of like focused, I guess. I don't know, just like on the games, obviously, that's like making the money. They're just kind of like in a different direction, I feel like, as a company. Um, yeah. Whereas I think they could like actually uh, profit a lot, actually, if they did focus, like, I guess, I guess, like a part of their company to like a lot of the retro stuff, you know? Oh, absolutely. It, it's funny because um, my, my uh, you know, I, I still write freelance for Shack Nudes, and the editor in chief, Asif Khan, is a big fan of F Zero. And like every E3, he's like, this is it, guys. F-Zero. And I'm like, I don't want to burst your bubble. <laughs> but they're never going to announce that. He's like, why? Why do you honestly think that? And I said, because even though Nintendo has like billions and billions of Scrooge McDuck money bin stuffed full of billions and billions of dollars, even they're kind of consolidating. Like if you look at like they like Capcom have this huge vault of properties they could dust off and bring back at any time. And yet Mario Kart always sold better than F-Zero. So you look yeah. at like Mario Kart 8, they've got F-Zero levels. They have 200 CC, which is does not meet the speed of F-Zero, nor are the games really the same. F was much more of a skill-based game. But as far as Nintendo's concerned, like even bringing back Metroid was honestly kind of a miracle. I don't know how you feel about that. But, you know, yeah. those games didn't always sell well. They were never like Mario, Zelda level of sales numbers. So, you know, you could see another F-Zero. But as far as Nintendo's concerned, they've got Mario Kart, and that's kind of their racing game now, even though mm-hmm. they could have more than one. I mean, F-Zero would have to go in a very different direction because, yeah, it's like you said, they have Mario Kart and there's, like, no reason to go into F-Zero, really, with, I guess, how similar enough that those franchises are. I mean, you just have, like, two, like, Nintendo racing franchises. 
Um, yeah. And um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like even if if like F Zero, if F Zero like sold well enough, like for for Nintendo to be satisfied, they probably wouldn't do it anyway, just because it would be cannibalizing their sales. Like, why don't you give it to a studio who can? put out something awesome during one of Mario Kart's off years. Like I think everybody expects to get a Mario Kart nine made exclusively for switch. But if that's still a year or two off, why not uh, a third party F zero game to kind of fill the gap there? And yeah. it's interesting. I mean, it would be kind of like, um, I guess like going, you know, going in between like say like a uh, call of duty, mo- modern warfare, and then like into ghosts and the modern warfare again and ghosts again. Like it, it could, it could kind of be yeah. like, like an off and on if you had like a different studio handling f-zero or different studios or whatever it might be so yeah and especially now you know with the switch doing the numbers it does there's there's really um no question in my mind that like any property nintendo brought back even like earthbound even if we want to get really more niche um would do well just because of the sheer volume of people who buy games on switch you know yeah, and like also like a lot of people being being I guess I guess like exposed to the Earthbound or Mother series really uh, through like Smash Brothers too. So, geez, that's how I was introduced to Fire Emblem. I didn't really play a lot of RPGs growing up, and then I realized oh, yeah. all these people, this like generic looking dude named Mike. <laughs> like, oh, apparently he's in his own game. Okay, I guess. You yeah, know, like, and then I'm from there. I just <laughs> Marth, kind of into Roy. It. Yeah, yeah. Like, 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 oh, who are these well, people? Everybody <laughs> knows. Everybody knows Roy. What a great name! <laughs> right. Be like Seinfeld. It's like, who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> what is the deal with Roy? Yeah. <laughs> what is the deal with all these sword characters? <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> you know. So yeah, and um, and, and also speaking of the Switch too, um, you know, to go, you know, to go back into into like the the like um, the arcade talk. Uh, there's also Hamster too that's been doing like a great job uh, as far as bringing back like a lot of like arcade classics and like having them be like yeah. um, as close, if not like perfect, to like how like the like arcade versions were. Yeah, it's just, I think as someone who grew up in arcades and is is so glad the scene thriving, I'm really happy that like there's not, like the one company doesn't have a monopoly mm. over it. You know, I think that especially in the past 12 months, I mean, um, you know, we've seen like again, Street Fighter 30th anniversary, Capcom beat them up, uh, Hamsters games, no matter what type of arcade games you were into, by and large, you can find someone bringing back either those games or titles in the same vein of those games, which I think is pretty cool. Mm, that's awesome, yeah. And uh, your book, RK Perfect, How Pac-Man, Mortal Kombat, and Other Coin-Up Classics Invaded the Living Room is going to be coming out on September 13th. And um, where could people go in order to um, in order like, to pick that up or pre-order? Uh, the best place, if you check out arcadeperfect.com, there are links to the, the Kindle and paperback versions, and it will also, within the next few months, be making its way into bookstores but you can definitely always find a copy on amazon and check again check out arcade perfect uh, it's actually excuse me arcadeperfectbook.com gotcha arcadeperfectbook.com very very good and um where can people go in order to find you online there david uh follow me on twitter at david l craddock very good very good well david thank you for speaking to me about you know about your book about like arcade games and just everything in between i think we definitely covered like a lot of stuff especially f-zero so <laughs> yeah we had a little nintendo minute there a little bit yeah the like nintendo minute of the podcast if you will <laughs> <laughs> you know so thank you again for speaking with me and um best best of luck with with a new book thanks a lot man it's always a pleasure talking with you
Hi, I'm Justin. And I'm Josh. And we host the Pretty OK Gamers Podcast. Think of our show as water cooler conversations with a little less gossip and a little more geeking out. My Halo, I think, is Legend of Zelda. What? No way. No. Who are you again? I'm Justin, and we're we're (laughs) rather okay at playing pretty good games. No, no. Every week, we talk about games and their history, and even ask ridiculous questions like, are open world games even good? So come join us every Sunday on the HP Gaming Podcast Network. See you there. See ya. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.